Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to consider making a donation to our church. You may not know this, but our church isn't big, and at the same time, our impact is big. One example of this is our sermon audio, like you are listening to now. It will be listened to over 50,000 times this year and all over the world. I've recently had the opportunity to help someone get in a support group for their eating disorder and another person take steps to making amends with their in-laws. Both of these things happened because people heard our sermons online and reached out. Even more recently, I saw that someone in Saudi Arabia, a place where church is illegal, had listened to a sermon I preached on the worthiness of Jesus. I love that. All of this takes money to accomplish. I hope you're impacted by our sermons too. If you are, please consider making a donation to our end of the year fundraiser. You can do this by going to creekside.me slash donate and selecting the Moving the Mission Fund. Again, that's creekside.me slash donate. Any amount you give us helps move the mission forward. If it's $1 or $1,000, we will appreciate your help. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today, we're going to continue to study the book of Revelation. And I'll tell you, of all, the, of all the sermons that I've preached as we've moved our way through this book, this one actually surprised me the most in just its subject matter. I think if you were to read the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, Revelation 9, you, you, would, you would, on first glance, not pick up on, on I think, what's maybe the major theme, the thing that, uh, that God wants us to hear when we read this passage and wants us to hear today as we study it together. And, and it answers, I think, this, this question that's not very Revelation-like. It's not very apocalyptic, but it's important for our day and the things we face. And as it turns out, I guess, it is apocalyptic. We just don't see it that way very frequently. In fact, as I, as I say this question that it answers, I would hope that maybe uh, for the first time we could all go, well, maybe, maybe there is something apocalyptic about that. And here's the, here's the question. Does it really matter what you believe? Does it really matter what you believe? Will that have any impact on your life, on our society? Does it really matter what you believe? And, and you, I mean, if you're like me, you're like, that doesn't feel like it fits, that question in the book of Revelation. But as we'll see in a very apocalyptic way, uh, it does. It does. And here's the thing about it. It all stems from imagery, as maybe you could have guessed if you've been around as we've moved through Revelation. It all stems from the imagery of a star and a key. And a star and a key are going to help us answer the question, does it really matter what I believe? But before we look at the star and the key and everything that flows from that, we also need to talk about a trumpet because trumpets have been at the heart of the last three sermons counting today. We're in this section where a trumpet is blasted by an angel and then these calamities fall upon earth. And the calamities are, it seems, in large part punishments given by God to people that oppose him and persecute his people. In the last two weeks, you've heard some about those trumpets, but I want to say something again. In the Bible, as you look at the word trumpet, it's really interesting. If you're just to study, you could spend a whole day doing it. 
what trumpets do and what they symbolize and where they are blown in the Bible. And you would see that two kind of big themes arise. And that is that the trumpet is sounded to call people into battle and to call people into celebration. Those seem really far apart. I feel like the Israelites maybe could have had two different instruments, but the trumpets are meant to call people to celebration and to battle. The imagery is used to remind people that the trumpet represents encouraging God's people that he will bring them justice. He did that through battle and war, often in the Old Testament, but it reminds them that God will bring justice. But at the same time, it serves as a warning to those who oppose God and hurt God's people. It serves as a warning. The trumpet is interesting, right? Because trumpets are heard. They're loud instruments. And so they stand as a warning. Now, as I say all that, you say, well, why wouldn't God just say, hey, this is meant to remind Christians that, you know, that they should celebrate that he'll give them justice and warn people who oppose God that, that he will bring justice. Why doesn't he just say that? Well, this book, this book called Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a piece of apocalyptic literature. It's not the only piece of apocalyptic literature, but for those of you who've been around, I'm sorry for sounding like a broken record, but as we've moved through this series, I think it's just so important to keep reminding people that apocalyptic literature has some characteristics, always. It's filled with visions and symbols. That's two things that are really important. You say, well, why? And I've talked about in my first sermon when we began the book of Revelation that for John, who's writing this book, exiled to an island called Patmos under arrest, under Roman authority, he probably was inspired by God to write an apocalypse with visions and symbols in order that he could get this letter off of the island to the churches in Asia Minor who would have understood the symbols and the visions that John laid forth. So he writes this way, I think, is inspired by God for a very pragmatic reason. The letter wouldn't be ripped up and thrown into the trash. It's really hard to get a letter past a bunch of Roman officials that says Roman is sinful and evil and they're going to be destroyed. That doesn't fly, right? And if you talk about dragons and beasts and things like that, they would have never picked up on it. But the Israelite audience, the Christian audience, they would have understood and so he uses visions and symbols. They're also apocalyptic uh, literature is dualistic, like good versus evil. There's no gray. It's pessimistic, gets bad, and it's deterministic, like things are about to happen, even when those things might be a little bit out in the distance. It's written in such a way to make it sound like this is about to happen right now. And as I say all that, I want to remind you once more or tell you for the first time that it's important that we remember that at its core, Revelation is meant to be a book that impacts our lives. The sad reality with this book, more than any other book in all of the Bible, is that people only see it as a book of interest and not as a book of impact. People are concerned with figuring out what it means, but they don't care very much about figuring out how. It can change their lives. And my whole goal in preaching through this book is to help Revelation become in your life, in our church's life, a book that actually impacts the way in which we think and live our lives. And so here in the middle of the trumpets, the section on the trumpets, I'll do my best again 
to answer this question, does it matter what we believe? And hopefully answer it in a way that reminds us, that calls us to live and think differently. Here's what Revelation 9.1 says. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. So the fourth angel sounds his trumpet, and a star falls from the sky to the earth. This star is personal, personal, like it's not an inanimate object. And so the question we must ask is, who is it? Now, if you're starting to understand Revelation and the way that I'm teaching it, then you'll be like, you'll, you'll know this already. It, it matters. It matters in asking that question. What's the star? Who's the star? How you understand the book of Revelation in the first place. So futurists who see this book about a, a future event that, that really surrounds the return of Jesus, uh, they see it as a people or a group of people or a person around the time when Jesus returns. Some would say it's a bad pope. It's not me, but some would say it's like the pope and he's a bad one and this is who the star represents. Historicists who see this book as a timeline through Christian history. By the way, side note, this is where, like I, I've said in my sermon that the historicist view is the one that I think has the least merit uh, to see it as a timeline, but this is where they start to like look right. And there's a few places in Revelation where you're like, ooh, wait a minute, let's talk about that. And this is one of them. They would see the star as if you're a Protestant Christian, as Muhammad, if you're a Catholic, you might see it as Martin Luther. Um, and so there's this, this time frame in history, right, where it's like, oh, we can align some historical Christian events with what we're reading here. Idealists see it as Satan and preterists who see it as a, uh, about early events, first century events. They see this star, some of them, as a messenger of God. Now, I know that last one kind of comes out of left field, right? And it's like, wait a minute, a messenger of God sounds good and the rest sound bad. But I think it's, it's kind of the one-off. And I think actually in this situation, preterists, I'm just going to tell you my opinion here. I think they're actually wrong. I, I think that whoever is represented in this situation, this star, I think that it represents evil. And I'm just, I haven't done this and I, I don't plan on doing it very often as we move through Revelation, but I think that the star represents Satan here. I think that's who the star alludes to. Now, even if you don't take Satan, you're like, I knew it, he's wrong about everything and I'm not gonna listen to him anymore. Like, just stay with me because even if it's not Satan, I think it is very, very likely that it represents evil in some way, shape or form. I think it epitomizes evil in the person of Satan. But if you just take it as like somebody that is working on Satan's behalf, I think everything that I'm going to say from here on out still applies. And that's where we get this book wrong. People want to sit around and argue about whether it's, you know, Muhammad or Martin Luther. They want to argue about whether it's Satan or a person. And they miss the point that the star in some ways seems to represent evil and a person that represents evil. Now, why Satan? Uh, in large part because of Luke 10, 17, and 18. So uh, this is me just uh, you know, showing my cards. In Luke 10, 17 through 18, we read, 
this. The 72 returned with joy and said, this is 72 people that Jesus sent out to do ministry. And they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Lightning, star, falling from heaven to earth. It really seems to align. And everything that happens in our passage from there on out would really fit well. It does fit well with this being Satan, with this representing Satan. And here's what happens. It's really interesting. Satan or this evil being, whoever you want it to be, they're given the key to the abyss. Now the word abyss means simply a deep hole, an endless hole in Jewish thought, but uh, it has really a, a metaphorical usage in history as like the place of evil. In Luke, again, Luke 8, 31, it's really fascinating. Uh, Jesus is casting out demons and, and they, is what it says, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, the place of evil. I think this gives us a clue uh, about how we're supposed to be impacted by this passage. It, it seems to suggest uh, that, that even, even the place of evil God is in control of. And here we see an instance where God is saying, Satan, I'm going to allow you to have the keys for a while. But we picture like God is not in control of certain places like hell, for example, right? And we say, well, that's Satan's domain. There is no domain that Satan controls. If God allows Satan to have some power, then he has some power. But if God does not, then Satan has no power. Jesus says that, that Satan is the prince of this world. And so he's been allowed to have some power on this earth, but all of it is under the rule and reign, the autonomy, the authority, the sovereignty of God. The book of Revelation, one of the main points is that it wants to remind you and me that God is in control of everything. And even in moments where it seems like Satan's power is being unleashed, God still is in command of it all. And there's this other thing that I think we, we, just, we just can't miss it. Like, it's really fascinating. Here we are in the midst of this story about God punishing those who oppose him and persecute his people. And, and one of the ways that God does that is simply by letting Satan or this evil being have power. God is not actively involved in this punishment. He just says, here. And what you're going to see is that it's terrible for the world. In fact, we've seen the other trumpets already. And here we have this long description of the final two trumpets. And most people seem to think that it's meant to show us a rise in intensity or terribleness. And so here's the four you know, Trump is before this and all of a sudden God just hands the keys to Satan and that's when things get really, really bad. My grandma used to say Satan is a terrible, 
taskmaster. And I find it interesting that, that so many people think I would not want to serve a God who allows things to happen, but in turn, they start to serve a Satan who is far worse, who is terrible, who is bad. God is not bad. Don't I did not mean to say that in that way. He's, Satan is not just far worse. God is perfect and good. And whatever God allows to happen is in, uh, in line with his character and nature. It is moving history towards end. Satan just wants to destroy. And even God's punishment is not as bad as the work of Satan in this that we are reading here. We may not like what God allows to happen on earth, but even, even when the bad things that take place take place, we see here that in some way it appears that God is restraining evil. He is holding evil within the abyss. Now, what this also suggests is at some point or some points in history, maybe God won't restrain it in the same way that he is now. It continues, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months, and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now, as you could have guessed, what this refers to is debatable. People debate it. I think that it's best to see the fallen star of Satan, but even if you take it as Muhammad, then you would see it in the same way. This is that which extends from whatever evil is being represented here. So if it's Muhammad, it would be Muslims in that viewpoint. It's not my view. If it's Satan, this is demons. This is demons. Demons are being unleashed upon the earth. In fact, we see that it gets dark when the smoke rises from the abyss. In John's writings, light is a big, big deal. For example, you might recognize this phrase. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is that which is good and pure and holy and glorious. And darkness in the writings of John represent that which is the opposite of our good and perfect God and Savior. And so here it seems that what takes place is that the, the keys to the abyss are handed to Satan and out of it comes all of this evil that darkens even that which is good on earth. At the end of the story, Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 we see quite the opposite. We see a place and a time when things are so good that we don't even need lights to light the place. Listen to this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. God's presence is so unique and so powerful in this heavenly scene that we don't need the sun or the moon because it's, it's light. And so for John, darkness is the absence of light. It's the absence of the work, and the grace and the goodness and the glory of God. And so the smoke comes out of the abyss and, and, and Satan begins through these, these uh, locusts to harm people, to harm people. Now, it's interesting here because um, 
it's a weird passage that seems so apocalyptic and it seems so negative, but uh, one of the things that's so impressive to me in the book of Revelation, and, and I hope if you've been around that you're picking up on it, is that even in the midst of these very scary scenes of punishment and death and evil, we're always seeing these, these, this thread of God's mercy being woven through it. And the reality is here in this passage that even, even for those who don't believe, we see signs of God's mercy, and we'll come back to that. Now, the question is, what are the locusts? Uh, the locusts are probably not actual locusts. Um, for those that understand the book of Revelation, I think far too literally, they may say that it actually is locusts, but I'll give you an example. Proverbs thirty twenty seven says, locusts have no king, and here these locusts are said to have a king. And so what are they? Well, uh, some would say that they were the barbarians who Romans feared, and that would be the preterists. Uh, futurists would see them as this future army. Uh, Hal Lindsey, who wrote a book that influenced so much of how American, modern American Christians think about the book of Revelation, said they were cobra helicopters. Uh, I will stick with my guns here and say that they are demonic forces. That This is demons being unleashed on earth. And here's where we see the mercy of God, even in the midst of this terrible evil scene. They're not allowed to kill. God says, you can hurt them, but you can't end them. You can't make this, by the way, it says it for five months. You can do this for five months, which seems to symbolize a lack of permanence. Interestingly, it's about how long a locust plague lasts. I didn't know that off the top of my head. I learned that in studying for this sermon, but that's kind of the general number. And so it seems to say there will be an end to this. And obviously they can't harm those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, they can't harm Christians. In fact, God is using all of this to work for the good of those who love him. Remember, a trumpet blast is meant to be a warning to those who reject God, but it's meant to be celebratory to those who follow God and serve God. Your time of suffering, that trumpet blast is declaring, is going to come to an end. Those who hurt you and torment you and persecute you and kill you are going to be dealt with. God is using all of this for the good of those who love him. Now, in the midst of it, it says that it will be like a scorpion sting. Uh, we went on a big road trip this summer. We were gone for almost a month. And, uh, and I saw, it was dead, but I saw my first scorpion. It was a dead scorpion, but we're still talking about it. Like, you know, we almost got attacked by one. It was really cool. It was outside, thankfully. But before we saw that even... I mean, like when we were sleeping in New Mexico, when we were sleeping in Arizona, when we were sleeping in Texas, all three of them, I'm thinking I'm going to find a scorpion in my bed. I don't know what a scorpion like sting feels like, but just have you seen one? Like I'm not, you know, like a picture even like they're, ugh. you know, it's like if you took a spider, you cut off four of its legs and you gave it steroids, like then I think you have a scorpion. And so like what I think this is intended to say is like the sting of these demons, even though limited by God in their power, is going to be terrible. And in fact, it says so. It's going to be so terrible that people will want to die. And the literal phrase is death will elude them. It's fascinating to me to think about that. 
Because it seems in our country today that, well, it's, it doesn't seem, it seems it's real, that suicide rates are through the roof and um, more and more people don't want to exist. And I think we can connect that, and I think we will see it even more connected in a minute, to the rise, the allowing of Satan more and more to have his way in our country. And the natural, the natural consequence of that is that people want to die more and more. Remember, God's not doing anything in this passage. He's not an active punisher of people in what we're looking at right now. It's just Satan doing his work because it hurts people. It tortures people, and they no longer want to live. Now, you might go, as I say that, you might say, well, this seems so bad. It's like, you know, he's coming down there, and, and they're doing all this, this, you know, terrible stuff. But notice it hasn't said anything that they're doing yet. And what we're going to see as we move through the rest of this is that what they're doing is far more subtle it looks far more like what happens right now all around us than we would have ever expected. Listen first to Revelation 9, 7 through 10. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like Breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. Now there will be people who just try to see this in a very literal way. They'll point to helicopters, for example, and say, you can kind of see how they have a tail and I've said before, with these four viewpoints that I've presented almost every week in this book of Revelation, I think all of them have some merit. All of them can be really good. I think when we start to try to see Revelation that literally, we're, we're actually hurting the point of the book. I, I think that we need to recognize symbolism in Scripture when symbolism is intended. And here, I think if we're just like, it kind of looks like a futuristic helicopter, we're actually missing what God wants us to hear. It does a disservice to this book and God's uh, delivering of this book to us when we try to take it that literal. So let me, let, me, let me try to go really symbolic with it, like go the other direction, because this is where I think we find the real value. First, these locusts representing evil, I think demons, they're doing battle. That's a big deal, right? The Bible tells us that Satan wages war against our soul, that the dark forces are waging war against our souls. And here we see the locusts doing battle. And what are they doing battle for? I think our souls. Far too often, even for those of us who are Christians, who believe in a spiritually dark realm, who think Satan's real and demons are real, even we, we act like it's just not that important. Like it's no big deal. We forget that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. The book of Ephesians in the last chapter, Ephesians 6, it describes us putting on the armor of God so that we may be protected from the spiritually dark forces that want to get us, that are doing battle against us. Our souls... 
are being battled against by Satan and those who extend from Satan. And we, we need to remember as such, and we do need to put on the armor of God. We need to protect ourselves. We need to be focused on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We need to be spending time praying and reading the Bible and with other Christians. We need to do this that we're doing now, going to church. If we're just on an island alone, acting like nothing ever bad is going to happen, then this will be a losing battle for us. We will lose the battle for our souls. Notice they have women's hair. I think that's a way of saying they look enticing. When we think about demons, we think about the exorcists and things like that. But oftentimes, the way demons appear to us, I use the word appear very broadly, the way that they show up in our lives is just far more enticing. Perhaps it's that whisper in our ear that says, look at that website. Maybe it's just that the advertisement popped up in the first place. We think that demons are going to show up and be like, I'm going to get you. And most of the time, they're going to show up and just look attractive to us. They seek to devour us, the lion's teeth. They are strong and powerful. They have breastplates of iron, and they sound like thunder. The stingers like scorpions show us that they hurt people badly. Satan wants to destroy us. So what's this describe? What's it, I mean, a lot of words, very apocalyptic, more than anything else we've seen so far. What, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a time or times in history where God pulls back the restraints that he has placed on evil and allows evil to run more wild in our midst. I don't think it's dissimilar to what is described in, in Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then three times in three different ways right after that, it says that God gave people over to their evil. God gave people over to their evil. And we live in a time now where in some ways God has given people over to the evil. And it appears that on top of that, at some point, God might give people over to the evil. It goes both ways. Part of the way that God punishes people who stand opposed to him and persecute his people is simply by letting sin run its course. Jim McGuigan says the combination of innocence and yieldingness with vicious and devastating power. And isn't this so characteristic of decadence? Doesn't it offer so much while eating and devouring? Doesn't it combine a natural healthiness or healthy naturalism with a deadly eating at the inner man? Jim McGuigan and all his intelligence is saying that sin devours us. He goes on to say when we grieve over our slums, the jobless and the hungry, we are grieving over things which should distress, but these are only fruits from a root, sin. See, what is described in our passage is not like this giant scene where scorpions are showing up and hitting us with their physical, literal tails, and we're like, ow, that hurt a lot. What is being described in our scene is in some ways the way that Satan is always working. 
And what God is saying to us in this passage in Revelation is simply, hey, there will be a time or times, depending on how you understand the book of Revelation, a time or times when I pull back the restraints on evil in order to punish. I mentioned that in our society today, more people want to die than ever before. More people are taking their own lives than ever before. And I think that it's in a lot of ways because evil is less restrained than it has been. God gives really four ways on earth to restrain sin and to restrain evil. You've thought about all of these things, but maybe you've never identified them. The conscience, family, government, and the church. These have all been given to us in order to restrain evil. In order that God would hold back, you know, evil running its full course. Because we all know, like, when evil gets away and when people don't have any authority over them in their lives, what happened? These people become terrible and they do things that you and I, who are fear, run the fear of being arrested or whatever, we're like, man, I could never do that. But they do. And we see it more and more in our country. Why? Well, I think we see a little bit of what's said in 1 Timothy 4 too. Paul describes people whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I think we've seen consciences seared by people in our world today, far too many people. What about the family? Well, they call my generation the fatherless generation. So there's been a deterioration of the family. What about government? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) One way that I see that the government's lack of... uh, Helping with morals is, is, man, this is going to sound so political. I'm going to say it. I have it written down. I'm going to say it. But back in 1998, when Bill Clinton was impeached, all the Christians around me were like, we have to have a president who is standing for moral goodness. We can't have this. And you contrast that with the way that so many Christians around me thought about Donald Trump's moral behaviors, right? And I just, as you know, 15-year-old and a 38-year-old, like I can't, it's something is different now, right? In the way that we view government's responsibilities, that's changed a lot in the last however many years that is. That's as political as I'll be. Uh, And then, man, lots of sections of the church won't call anything sinful. And so what do we have in our world, in our country specifically right now? We have more evil running free than any time at least when I've been alive, because the conscience has been seared, the families are broken, the government isn't doing its job, and the church isn't either. And so it's no wonder that people feel the sting of Satan in a greater way than they have before and simply don't want to live the way that we are living. And it's made so clear, I think, in this final two verses. And it won't look clear when you first read it. I've got to give you just one piece of historical context, and I think it uh, becomes more clear. Listen to 11 and 12. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, that is destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Uh, notice that this king, who I continue to think is Satan, is given a name and it's Apollyon, which means destroyer. Satan wants to destroy you. It's closely related to death or grave. Satan and the smoke, they want to destroy you. And God restrains them, but not always and not 
forever. He's always all-powerful. He's always sovereign over them, but at times, he doesn't restrain them in the same ways. And the ways, obviously, that Satan tries to destroy are vast, but here's, here's what I think permeates the entirety of our passage, especially the description of the locust, but also this name. Apollo was a Greek god who God-fearing people are God-fearing people associated with false prophecy, false teaching. And so what's the connection? The way that it seems Satan and his smoke, his demons, is working is through stripping down our ideas of truth, replacing truth with untruth. That is one of the key weapons that Satan uses to sting you, to torture you, and to try to destroy you. We live in a time when people want to say that there is no truth, where there is no objective right and wrong, and when morality is simply left up to whatever a person feels. Far too many Christians have, have followed suit and said, I'll believe what is true, whatever society tells me is true, whatever Twitter tells me is true. And in that way, it is no surprise that we live at a time in our country that is more evil than any other time in our country's history, and people simply don't want to live anymore. We do not do people a service as Christians. We do not do our families a service. We do not do our nation a service. We do not do the world a service when we just grab the same truth as everybody else and hold it up like, well, yeah, we agree too. It allows for evil to run rampant. Now, don't hear me wrong. Don't be a jerk. Like, you don't got to run around being a jerk. But do tell the truth. And do tell God's truth. And so what do we do with all this? Well, I want to try to recap it. Even as I wrote the sermon, I thought, man, it's not your clearest, buddy. Um, like, maybe that was Thanksgiving. I don't know. But, like, you gotta, you're going to have to recap this at the end. And so let me recap. Cap. One of the ways that God punishes is by taking away the restraints on evil. Even when God punishes, he still bestows mercy. We know this to be true mostly because of the offer of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus came from heaven to earth to die for our sins. And he came in order that evil could be conquered in our lives. And that no matter how unrestrained evil becomes, no matter how much damage Satan does, our souls are secure. We have the victory in Jesus. That's the ending of this book. If you place your faith in Jesus, if you believe in what he did for you on the cross, if you believe that he came back from the dead and you commit yourself to him, then no matter what befalls earth, no matter how wide and vast and deep evil comes onto this planet, you, you, you will win. You will be victorious. But Satan wants to destroy you. And what he does is enticing and powerful and painful. And so we ask ourselves, what must we do with all this? And the first thing I would say and will say and do say is become a Christian. 
I mean, evil is running rampant in you if you don't give your life to Jesus. What the Bible says is that each and every one of us is a slave to sin and death apart from Jesus. And the only way for those shackles to be broken is by committing ourselves to Jesus because we come to believe that he died for those same sins that we commit. And so become a Christian. is isn't just like, I, I need to say this to you. I need to say, I want to say this to you because evil is running rampant in your life and it will ruin and destroy you. Satan wants to harm you and destroy you. And Jesus is the only way to be saved. And so become a Christian, become a Christian. And then for those of us that are Christians, we have to be people of truth. We do. I think sometimes we feel like the world will be better if we can just be more agreeable about these certain areas where people, you know, will get mad at us if we tell them the truth. We think if I'm just more agreeable, then maybe more people will become Christians and all that. I just, it's not working. <laughs> I mean, more teenagers are killing themselves now than ever before. More teenagers are killing other people now than ever before. Not blame us in some ways because we haven't been willing to tell the truth. And, and I think we've done it saying, I love people. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. And I get that. I, I do that. I fall into that trap too. But we have to be willing to be one of the restraints on evil. The church, you, me, us. Part of the way God restrains evil so that people aren't as hurt, so that people's souls aren't destroyed, so that people come to know Jesus. There's this phrase in, in the epistles of John. First John uses this phrase. I love this phrase. Preached on it once like a decade ago, and I love it. It's truthing in love. It's a weird translation in English, right? But that's the Greek, the actual language that John wrote it in. Truthing in love. We need to be people who truth in love, who tell the truth, not because we want to get people on our side, not because we want to win arguments, not because we're angry, not because it's us versus them. We need to tell the truth because we love people. We need to be willing to call sin, sin. And we need to be willingly, lovingly excited to tell people the gospel. Jesus came to die for your sin so that you could be set free. In fact, that's what Jesus says. Jesus referring to himself says, the truth will set you free. And I hope that you will embrace the truth or share the truth in order, in order that people might find freedom and be saved from destruction. Let me pray that we will. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the times when I have been wishy-washy about the truth. Lord, like I said, I think it's come from a place of... Um, not wanting to offend, not wanting to be a jerk, not wanting to sound like so many, uh, well, I don't know, people that end up on TV that, uh, that represent Christians and they're mean and they uh, don't seem to love, but they just yell at others. I don't want to look like that. And so I, I, God, don't always tell the truth. I, I don't lie. <laughs> but I don't tell the truth. And I pray, Lord, that for me and for us, that we would be a people of the truth. And Lord, there are times, I think we use this as an excuse too, where we disagree about the, the details of what Scripture says and doesn't say. And that, like, I'm not I'm talking about the things that are so clear. Let us be truthful about them, Lord. 
Let us tell the truth. Let us not try to fit your truth into what we want to be right, Lord. Uh, I think that's a recipe for disaster. I pray, God, that, that we would be people of truth. And for those, Lord, who have never accepted the truth, you, I pray, God, that you would use this sermon by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring them to you, Lord. I think that that trumpet blast is supposed to be a warning that people need you. And even now, Lord, for those here, for those watching online that have never come to believe and accept the gift that you offered on the cross, I pray that this moment that you would compel them to come to you, Lord. You would draw them to yourself and they would, they would enter into your family, God, so that they may be forgiven of their sins, but even more specifically for today, so that they may be, God, uh, set free from the sin that runs their lives and be protected for eternity from the evil that wants to destroy them. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name.